The scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Hear the word of our Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I was going to say we're continuing our series on growing in grace, but actually today we're finishing our series on growing in grace. And uh, we're coming to the end of our attempt to understand how the church functions as a means of grace. We've seen the nature of the church from Matthew 16. We've seen the purpose of the church, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, at least one element of that purpose. And today we're considering the priority of the church. Really, this is just the outgrowth of everything we've seen already. Right? This is the product of having a right understanding of the nature of the church and a right perspective of the purpose of the church. What does that lead to? Well, that ought to lead to the, an understanding of the priority of the church, the priority that the church has in every single believer's life. Now, as we start, let me clarify what I mean by the priority of the church. What I'm talking about is, for the Christian, the full participation in the biblical fellowship of the church. The priority of the church is getting at, for the Christian, full participation in the biblical fellowship of the church is not optional, but it is, in fact, necessary. And for us as individual believers, this participation is to be lived out in connection with a local assembly of the church. It is not possible for us to experience and live out biblical fellowship with God's people apart from being attached to a local community called the church, a local expression of Christ's universal body. Now, the Bible not only tells us that this is something that should be a part of every Christian's life, it tells us that this must be a part of every Christian's life. And if it is not, then we have every reason to doubt and question our claim to be Christians. Now, we're going to pray in just a minute, but... Let me give you some of the ways that we find the priority of the church made known to us in Scripture that aren't necessarily what we're looking at today. Just for the sake of my conscience, I need to, I need to at least mention these other ways that we see the priority of the church described in the Scriptures. It, it really is described in many different ways, and probably 
some of the more compelling ways that we find the priority of the church described in the scriptures is in reference to the means of grace that believers must partake in in order to grow in grace. So there are certain means of grace that if we are going to engage in those means of grace, the scriptures tell us that can only happen within the gathered assembly of the church. And apart from the gathered assembly of the church, we cannot partake in these means of grace. So one that we didn't really look at was church discipline. The Bible tells us that church discipline is something that can only happen within the context of the gathered assembly. Right? Matthew 18 Um, 18 verse 17, when Jesus gets to that final point of enacting church discipline on an unrepentant member, what does he tell the people to do? To bring bring the situation before the church, bring the situation before the gathered assembly of God's people and let their decision on the matter stand. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 through 5, as another example, that the only time that we have the power of the Lord Jesus Christ present with us to hand someone over to Satan is when we are gathered together, when we are assembled together as the church. So church discipline is something that can only happen through the gathered assembly of believers in a local church. Celebrating the Lord's table is another one. We're going to be doing that today. The Bible tells us we cannot partake in the Lord's table properly if we are not partaking of it in the gathered assembly of God's people. See that in 1 Corinthians 11.20, for example. Though it's worded as a rebuke to the Corinthians, it shows us that celebrating the Lord's table in the early church was something that only happened when the church was gathered together. And that's because of the nature of what is being represented at the table. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, it is the visible expression of one body coming together to partake in one hope of our Lord Jesus Christ together. It's one body partaking in one bread, right? And so we cannot partake in the Lord's table if we are not partaking of it among the one body, the one gathered assembly of the church, or at least the local assembly we partake in. So we see the importance of the, you know, the priority of the local church and our fellowship, participation in the fellowship of the church in multiple ways. Those are just a couple of them. But in our passage today, the priority of the church is seen by the fact that participation in corporate fellowship is something that every believer is commanded to do. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Participation in the corporate life of the gathered body something that every believer is commanded by God to partake in, to participate in. Now we find this described in three ways, really laid out before us in three ways in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. There's the command to let us consider one another, which is followed by two ways of doing that, of fulfilling that command. One is by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And then the other is by actively encouraging one another. So we are to consider one another, and the way we go about doing that, the way God calls us to, is one, by not forsaking our gathering together, and then two, in our gathering, using that as an opportunity to encourage each other. So we're going to be looking at those three things today, and uh, as we get into that, would you pray with me? Father, we reach the 
point of the service where our inabilities are most acutely, most sharply felt. Lord, we, we can go through the motions and we can do our very best to sing, to pray, to preach, to sit under the preaching of the word. Lord, we can do all that, that we can do in our own strength and never actually come to the point where we are successful in any of those things, at least not in ourselves. And so, Lord, as we gather here as your people, as we gather to worship your holy name, to be worshipers in spirit and in truth together, God, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to do that very thing, or to render to you that which you have called us to give. As Augustine said, command whatever you will, Lord, but please will what you command. Lord, that's what we want for ourselves. We, we see the commands of your word. We could probably see them more clearly. But Lord, we, we really need your grace to help us live out those commands. And to do so not in a burdensome manner, Lord, but in a way that truly expresses love and a holy ambition to do what is pleasing in your sight. So Lord, we pray you would help us now as we, as we gather here, as I attempt to declare what you've shown me in your word. God, give me grace to speak clearly. Give me grace to speak with love and compassion, with, with your holy character being expressed through every word that is, that is uttered. God, please let your people sit well under the preaching of your word too. Guard their ears from hearing or taking in anything that's unhelpful. But Lord, whatever is helpful, may it penetrate down to the very depths of their being. And may it shape their hearts. And may they be prepared by your word to offer truer, purer, and more holy worship unto you in the name of Jesus Christ, Father. And it's in his name, his holy name, and for his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so today we're going to be looking at three, three things in this passage that are related to the priority of the church and our full participation in the corporate fellowship of the body. But before we do that, you guys are getting tired of probably all these introductory sections. You're just going to have to deal patiently with me, right? Before we do that, I do want to make some notes about the context in which these verses are found. It's really important to pay attention to what comes before this exhortation to make sure that we are not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together. What is it that comes before and really acts as the basis upon which these exhortations are thrust at us? Right? Why is it so important for us to consider one another, to assemble together, to encourage each other? Why is that so vital? 
Well, I believe that, as, I, as I've hinted, that is made clear by the context in which these verses are found. So Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25 in Greek is actually one sentence. So everything that was read this morning is one sentence in Greek. Now what you have in this one sentence, you have two different parts of it. You have the first half, which is really giving reasons or evidence or grounds for which the second half is given. So it's because of these things, because we have this and we have this, therefore let us do this and let us do that and let us not forsake doing this. So there's a connection here. All right, so what we find here really in this one sentence, there are two things going on. First of all, in verses 19 through 21, we have a brief summary of what Christ has done to save his people from their sins in order to give them access to God. Really, this is the message of the entire letter of Hebrews up to this point. It's simply laying before these believers the glory and the beauty and the splendor of what Christ has done as a reminder to them of the things they've already heard. Right? And there's a lesson, just a side note, parentheses here, there's a lesson in that, guys. If we are not paying attention to what we have heard, what is going to be the inevitable result? We're going to be drifting away from it. We will become distracted. We will not see what we ought to be seeing in what we've heard. All right, so here in this letter, we have these reminders of the glory of what Christ has done. And that's being summarized for us here in verses 19 through 21. That now, because of Christ... This is really the substance of what he's driving at. The writer of this, of this letter is driving at. That now, because of Christ, we have confidence to enter into the holy places. Now, Hebrews 9.24 makes clear to us what those holy places are. When it's talking about Christ ascending into the holy place, it's talking about the place of God's holy presence in heaven. And so here in Hebrews 10, 19, we as believers also have confidence. We have boldness. We have courage. We have every reason to march triumphantly into the holy place of God's presence in heaven. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. Right? Verses 19 through 20, we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Right? That it's because with his own blood, Christ has opened for us, as this verse says, a new and a living way into the holy place of God's presence. That's what he was doing on the cross, right? What was Jesus doing hanging upon the cross? He was opening for us a new and a living way so that we have a favorable access into the presence of God. With the veil of his flesh being torn apart, Jesus was inaugurating for us a new and a living way so that we might approach God and find his favor. Now, for us, we hear that kind of flat because we're so used to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? For these believers, it would not have landed upon them flatly because of what is intended, what is meant by this description, Jesus has opened for us a new and a living way by his blood. Right? 
This is a way into God's presence that is not like the old way that these believers were being tempted to return to. It's not a way that is based upon law and performance and merit and our own righteousness and animal sacrifice. All of that is a dead way. That's the old way, right? That's the way that, is, that belongs to our covenant with God in Adam that was fractured beyond repair when he fell into sin. Christ has come in order to open for us a new way, a living way, so that we might have fellowship with the Father. Not based upon our obedience to the law, but based upon Christ's obedience to the law. So I love that song, James. Thank you for choosing that song. I mentioned last week, that's one of my favorite songs we sing. James has rearranged the music for that song. I love that. I love what he's done to it. But what I love most about that song is that central declaration, Jesus, thy blood and thy righteousness, my beauty are my, my, my what does it say, my, my only dress, glorious dress, thank you. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift, with joy shall I lift my head. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His blood, his righteousness clothes us so that we can come into the presence of a holy God and lift our heads in his presence with joy. That's this new way that the writer of Hebrews is describing here in chapter 10. This way into God's presence that is not based upon our ability to earn God's grace or to be good enough to have it, but it's rather based upon nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by which that grace was secured for us. So that is the first part of what this sentence is doing. It is summarizing what is the good hope that we as believers have in Christ. That Christ has done everything necessary in order to give us a favorable entrance into the presence of God. And then after that comes... After this summary comes the second half of the sentence where we find three exhortations calling for believers to respond to those truths appropriately. If it is true that Christ has inaugurated a new and a living way for us into the holy presence of God, if it is true that he has opened that way with his own blood and he remains standing in glory as our high priest in the presence of the Father, if all of that is true, then there is left only one thing for us to do. And that is to make sure that in light of those truths, we are drawing near to God with them. That in light of what Christ has done, we actually own them. We take them upon ourselves and we come with confidence in that new and living way, declaring the name of Jesus as our expectation of finding success in that way. If that is what Jesus Christ has done, then there's only one thing left for us to do, and that is to hold fast to it and to cling tightly to what he has done without wavering. In other words, in light of what, what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done to save us, there is nothing left for us to do except to receive it, to rely upon it, to embrace it, and to continue pressing in and clinging tightly to it. That is, in essence, the Christian life, right? That's what Jesus says in John 15. This is what it's all about, guys. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Jesus has done it all. 
what are you expected to do now? You are expected to abide by faith in everything he's done for you. That is the only way to respond to the gospel appropriately. Not to turn it into a system of works. Not to try and earn God's favor in the name of Jesus. right? Whether that be by a faithful, quiet time, or not doing certain sins, or walking in a certain way. All of that, yes, you should be doing those things, but not as a means of earning God's favor. If you do that, you are truncating the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are emptying it of its glory. We don't add to what Christ has done. We simply receive what Christ has done by faith. Now, what's important for us to notice, why I wanted to go through that briefly, way too briefly for my taste. What's important for us to notice is that in our passage today, this is where the writer of Hebrews brings up the priority of the local church. It's in the midst of this declaration of what Christ has done and this calling upon believers to hold fast to it. It's right at that point that the writer of Hebrews looks upon the believers and says, by the way, you need to be devoting yourselves to the fellowship of the church. Yeah, the message of Hebrews comes down really in essence to two things. Number one, remember the glory of what Christ has done to save sinners like us. And number two, make sure that you don't drift away from it. But here's the deal. Whatever some of us may think about ourselves, we cannot live lives consistently doing this on our own. You will never be able to draw near to Christ. You will never be able to hold fast to Christ if you are out living as a renegade Christian, some lone ranger Christian on your own. And if for no other reason, that's true at least for this one, you'll never be successful living the Christian life on your own because God has not designed us to be able to do that on our own. God has not established the church in such a way that believers can somehow graduate from the church and stand upon their own two feet in the faith. That's what uh, Eldridge, what's his name? John Eldridge, that's what he said. So the church, the church is for immature believers who don't know how to stand on their own. But for mature believers, they graduate from their need of the church. You know, we, I, we, hear, we, we get shocked by it being represented that way. But you've got to understand, people live that way even if they would never say it. Okay? And let me, let me be clear here as well. Some people who attend church regularly live that way. Never really engaging in the fellowship of the church. Now, this is why the fellowship of, of the church must be our priority. Because the spiritual strength that we need in order to continue clinging to Christ and drawing near to Him is provided by the Holy Spirit through the means of true, genuine, biblical fellowship with other believers. That is how God operates in our lives. That's where we find strength to keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's in our fellowship with one another. It's what the Holy Spirit is providing for us through that. And so the Christian life cannot be lived in isolation because God has not designed it to be lived in isolation. 
So the question is then, how then do we as a local body of believers make sure that we are living up to this kind of biblical fellowship, this kind of fellowship that leads to the encouragement and the strengthening of the saints so that they do continue drawing near to Christ, they do continue holding fast to hope in Him, they continue remembering the gospel. Well, that's where I said I believe Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 gives us three ways. Number one, that fellowship among the church must be marked by a deep and true consideration of one another. Number two, that fellowship in the church must be marked by actually gathering with one another. And number three, that fellowship in the church must be marked by encouraging one another. So let's look at that first one. In Hebrews 10, 24, we find the command for believers to be considering one another. The writer says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Now, this word consider, really a strong word. It's describing an intense, strong mental activity of focusing your mind upon something. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, calling us to consider Jesus. Right. What it's conveying to us is, is this calling. It's really, in essence, to devote our attention to looking upon something with deep reflection. That there's an intentionality behind you paying attention to something. Now, what is it that we are to be thinking about? What is it that we are to be occupying our minds with in such a careful way? What would you say it is? I give you a hint. It's underlined. I was expecting Joy. I forgot she's somewhere else, but... I was expecting her to tell us. Yeah, what I was counting on was for Joy to say, let us consider how to stimulate one another. Now that makes it sound as though what we're considering is the manner in which we can stimulate each other. Right? Now most modern translations translate this verse that way. This is the uh, New American Standard Bible. But I think that in translating it like this, they miss the point that's being made in the Greek. They lead us to understand that what we, are, what we are thinking about, what we are considering, is the method or the manner in which we seek to stimulate each other. But I think the New King James, once again, gets it right here in Hebrews. I think for the book of Hebrews, the New King James is really taking the trophy on, on its translation. I hear some groans. <laughs> but you see how the New King James translate the, translates this. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. I think that is the right way to understand what we're being called to do here. We're not being called primarily to think about some method by which we can stir each other up. What we are being called to do here is actually set the focus of our minds upon each other. 
And so we're not simply thinking, what can I do in this person's life in order to encourage them? We are actually thinking about that person. We are considering their lives. We are considering their testimony of faith in Christ. We are considering the work that we see the Holy Spirit doing in them. And out of that comes an understanding of how we can approach them and stimulate them in the faith. Do you understand what I'm, the distinction I'm making there? If you don't know someone, if you don't spend time thinking about someone, if you don't spend time thinking about who they are and what they're like and even considering how they're failing in the Christian life, you are not going to be prepared to bring the gospel of Christ to bear upon them. Not in a way that would be most helpful to them. So what is it that we are being called to do? We are being called here to set our minds to be thinking carefully and reflectively upon one another. Now, you don't need me necessarily to ask this, but just a question of application. I'm not going to go deeper into this hole. But how much time do you spend thinking about other people in this body of believers? How much time do you spend thinking about who they are? what they're struggling with, where you see evidence of God's grace working in them, right? We can become so self-focused, even within the church, where everything, even in the church, becomes about us, right? Whether we were encouraged, whether someone interacted with us, whether someone else is thinking about me, someone praying for me. But this, this, this command, this verse is telling us to have just the opposite mentality. Where our understanding of what it means to be a faithful member in fellowship in the church is not primarily driven by a perspective focused on ourselves. It is driven by a radical otherness in our mentality. We are other-oriented. That's what we ought to be as a body of Christ. And when we have that, we will begin having true biblical fellowship, at least even more fully than we do now. Yeah, so what exactly are we considering in relation to one another? We are considering one another, but what are we thinking about? Well, I think in the context, what we're doing is giving serious thought to the reality of each other's spiritual state. We're giving a focused attention to whether or not Another person in our fellowship is actually drawing nearer to Christ with a true heart and sincerity of faith than they were last year or yesterday or the week before. We are giving serious thought to one another and thinking through whether or not we see evidence that the rest of those who are gathered with us in the church body actually are clinging more tightly to their hope in Jesus Christ. This is a a collective safety net that God has built into the fellowship of the church. Where you don't have to be focused as much upon whether or not you are growing. You can entrust that into the hands of your brothers and sisters if you're letting them truly get to know you. You can trust them to be keeping their eye and their attention upon you while you devote yourself to keeping your eye and your attention upon them. Right. And you understand why that is the case, why the Lord has structured it in this way? Because he has kept us from being able to discern everything that's true about ourselves and has given, by his grace, 
the gift of discerning things about us to others. How many times has a brother or a sister come up to you and spoken something into your life that you didn't even recognize was a sin? And then after they spoke with you, you realized, wow, that is sinful. I need to repent of that. Why did the Lord not show that to you? Why did he show that to others? Because that's their responsibility. That's how he's ordered and structured his church to dwell in unity and in fellowship so that every member, no matter how apparent their importance is, would still show the same kind of consideration for one another. 1 Corinthians 12. And so we're thinking about each other. We are called here to be setting our minds upon one another and evaluating the lives of each other and discerning whether or not we're truly growing in the gospel of Christ. Man, we're never going to get through this today. But let me just say a parenthesis here. The problem with, at least the problem with the church in America, I can speak definitively to that, and I can speak definitively to the church in Guatemala, okay? At least the problem with the churches in the West, one of the problems is that we leave this job entirely in the hands of the pastor. But I want you to understand This command is not being written exclusively to the pastor. This command is being written to you. You have a a responsibility to be caring for the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters in this body. Now, are you one who is entrusting that entirely into the hands of of your shepherds? We have that calling. We are responsible for the totality of you. We will give an account to everyone who has formally covenanted themselves with us here in this body. We will give an account on the judgment day to the Lord for for how we shepherded you. But you also have a responsibility to make sure that you are shepherding each other in a way. You're considering one another. Now, I want you to notice the specific purpose that's mentioned here as to why we are considering each other. We are considering one another in order to evaluate the the spiritual state of each other. But notice what it says here. We are doing this so that we will understand how to stimulate one another. Now, this word is fascinating. I I listened to uh, Brian Borgman preach on this passage, and he found here the, the proof or evidence for the scriptural doctrine of Christian irritation. Because that is what this word means. This word means to provoke one another. It means to incite one another. It means to irritate each other. Now that gives me comfort because I know how irritating I can be for some of you. That bothers you, I can say, look, it says right here, devote yourselves to considering how to irritate each other. Well, no, that's not really the... The, that's not really the emphasis. It's not what's being driven at here. But it is a forceful word. It is a very strong word. In fact, it's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Acts 15.39, where it describes this sharp disagreement that had arisen between Paul and Barnabas. They were stirring one another up. They had incited each other, except here they had incited each other to anger. Right? There was a sharp disagreement between them. Well, in a positive sense, this verse is calling you and me to give consideration to one another so that we might understand how we might go 
stir one another up. How we might, if you will, how we might rock the boat in each other's lives, right? The point here is that we are seeking to make each other uncomfortable so that we don't stay where we are. We are seeking to incite. We are seeking to provoke. We are seeking to irritate one another unto change. Okay? Now, if you can remove those words from any negative sense and use it in, in just a positive sense, what it translates here is a, as a, a stirring up of one another. We're stirring the pot. We're rocking the boat. We're trying to get one another to change in a positive direction. And what exactly are we trying to get each other to do? We're seeking how we can stimulate one another, how we can stir one another up to love and good deeds. Now, we need to move through this, but why would we need to be devoting one another, ourselves to one another, trying to understand how to stimulate each other to do acts of love and to do good deeds? Isn't that our natural, automatic um, reaction? Isn't that the way we just live automatically? Just full of love and naturally full of a desire to do good deeds for the Lord and for each other? No, you know your heart just as well as I know my heart. That is not the natural state of our fallen nature. Now, we as redeemed souls, we have been redeemed by Christ. We have been saved by Christ. We've been made new creatures, but we still inhabit unredeemed flesh. We still wage war against the deeds of the body by the Holy Spirit. Now what we are doing here, what we're being commanded to do here is really to take it upon ourselves, take this corporate responsibility to make sure that we as members of this local body are doing all that we can to help each other fight that battle against our flesh well. To stir one another up out of our laziness, out of our lethargy, out of our self-centeredness, and stir one another up unto a greater love of Christ. A greater love of the Father, a greater love of the Spirit, a greater love for His people. And then a greater expression of that love by stirring each other up unto good deeds. How does love express itself? It expresses itself in action. Good deeds. Praying, being in the scriptures, memorizing scriptures, evangelizing, seeking to do good to your neighbor, helping the old lady across the street, changing a flat tire, seeing what you can do to actually get other people to think outside of themselves and think about the well-being of others. That's really what we're seeking. That's what we're being called to do here in this verse. Now, a couple of really important points to take away from this. Before we move on to the second, second point here. So really important applications. What we've seen in this verse already means that biblical fellowship in the church must be intensely personal. Biblical fellowship in the church must be intensely personal. Personal. Really living out this command is going to involve, I think, two things. One, 
It, it requires a willingness on our part to know others. And secondly, it requires a willingness on our part to be known by others. If we're going to follow this command to consider one another so that we might know how to stimulate each other to love and good deeds, then we must truly know one another. In other words, you're not going to have any clue as to how to bring the gospel to bear upon someone else's life in a way that is helpful if you have no idea who that person is or even know what's going on in his or her life. And on the flip side, you will not be allowing your brothers and sisters to fulfill their responsibility in your life if you do not let them in and let them get to know you. Like Romans 15, 14, right? All these one another verses in the scriptures require that we know and are known by one another. Romans 15, 14, we are called, part of living the Christian life together means that we are called to admonish one another with the gospel. That means we are to warn, we are to instruct, we are to give counsel to each other. Just doing what Ephesians 4.15 calls us to do, speaking the truth in love so that we might in all aspects grow up into him who is the head. That's, what is in, that's what's entailed here in this command to be admonishing one another. Now, how are you going to do that in your brother or sister's life if you don't know them? How are you going to understand the right way to admonish your brother or your sister if you've never spent any time around them? If you've never gotten to know their joys or their struggles or their trials or their victories or their ambitions or their goals, how are you going to know how to admonish them in those areas if you have no idea where they really are? Or how are, you going to let, how are others going to do that for you if you do not put yourself in context where others can get to know you? How many people complain about not having deep relationships in the church. You know, I'm always left wondering whether they are actually giving others the opportunity to get to know them so that there can be deep relationships in the church. Romans 12, 15 through 16, we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep by being of the same mind. Now, how are you going to do that? How are you going to be of the same mind such that you weep with your brothers and sisters when they're weeping and you rejoice with your brothers and sisters when they're rejoicing if you don't know them and you do not allow them to know you? James 5.16, we are called to confess our sins to one another and to pray for each other. Now, not in some Catholic confessional way, we don't come back to Grant's office and confess our sins and then pronounce absolution over everybody and give penance to go earn your forgiveness. But rather, we're called to be confiding in one another regarding the real struggles that we're having to put to death the deeds of the body and to walk by the Spirit. Now, my question in relation to that one specifically is, is the atmosphere of fellowship in this body of believers such that we are all comfortable doing that? 
We're comfortable with one another. We, we trust one another's love and concern for us so much that we are willing to let the dirty, dirty laundry air out. Like expose the skeletons in the closet and say, guys, this is what's really going on in my life and I need your help. You know, some people don't like when the church seeks to get so involved in their lives. Just paying attention to my own life and the lives of those who are around me, I've come to believe, though, that when you have a desire to keep people out of your private life, normally it's because you're hiding something. The Bible commands us to be all in in each other's lives. Not in some obtuse or immature way, Not simply trying to be a busybody or trying to gossip about what's going on in someone else's life. But rather seeking to bear one another's burdens genuinely. By getting to know them and by letting them get to know you. So that's one application of this. There's there's no way to do this kind of biblical fellowship we're being commanded to do unless we are willing to get intensely personal in our relationships with one another. Number two, biblical fellowship requires an intense focus on other people. We're never going to live up to the call to consider one another if all of our attention is focused on ourselves. And you can apply that to any area of Christian fellowship. You can apply that to the kinds of songs we sing when we gather here on Sunday morning. Are you so focused upon whether or not you do or most often don't like the songs we're singing that you can't even enter into worship with your brothers and sisters? And sing that song unto the glory of the Lord, though it's not necessarily your preference? Or the sermon, do I go too long? Do I go, I go too short for some of you, I know. (laughs) And I thank God for that, right? But like when we're thinking through matters like that, is our first and primary consideration relating to what other people, what, what would be good for other people in something like that? Or is our primary consideration based upon what we want, what we like, what we prefer? Or how about care groups? Just another element of our fellowship here at Oak Ridge Community Church. Do you disagree with the ministry of care groups so much that you are willing to withdraw yourself from fellowship with your brothers and sisters who are gathering in those groups? You know, all that is is just a selfishness. It's a self-centeredness that is manifesting under the guise of pure motives, idealism. Just just some of the ways. These are just some of the ways that we can think through, like, biblical fellowship, true biblical fellowship in the church requires that we be intensely focused upon other people and not ourselves. Number three, and just quickly, biblical fellowship in the church requires intense personal commitment. And this is why formal membership in the church is so important. Now we have regular visitors here. You guys come very often and I'm very glad for that. I don't want you to hear me wrong when I say this. I'm very thankful to have you here. But people who are not willing 
to give themselves in formal commitment to the other brothers and sisters in this body are not going to be readily entrusted with real serious things by the people who are in this body. Does that make sense? If you're not willing to make that kind of formal commitment to the church body, why do you think the other believers in this church body who have made that commitment should entrust themselves to you so fully? What's with the reservation? Just a fear of commitment? That's, that's rife in our day. That's part of what we mean when we describe membership in this church as covenant commitment or covenant membership. Joining is making a formal pledge and commitment to the brothers and sisters in this body that you are committed to their spiritual well-being and you are expecting them to be committed to yours. That you're not going anywhere when things get hard. You're going to hammer things out together. You're going to walk through whatever comes your way together. All right, so those are just some applications of this call to be focused, be considering one another. Now, number two. Cultivating biblical fellowship in the church not only takes place when we devote ourselves to considering one another, but it also takes place by actually gathering together with one another. You see this in Hebrews 10.25. He says, Consider to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. Now this word forsaking, it can mean absolutely abandoning or severing all connection with the church. It can mean that. But it can also mean simply neglecting the assembly. Where a person maybe hasn't formally cut all ties with the assembly of the church, but is just caught in a pattern of not gathering together with the people of Christ. You know, where they haven't made like a confession rejecting the church that would be akin to apostasy. But they're just, they're just going about their business in neglect of the corporate assembly. That seems to be what the writer here is talking about because when he mentions forsaking the assembly, he describes it as something that some of them were in the habit of doing. Right? That means it was something that was being repeated. It was something that was ebbing and flowing in the lives of some of the people there in, in the church of these, uh, of these believers. Now, what is it to, if we're, the command here, the call here, I should say, is not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. What does it mean for us to be assembling together? Right, that's a question. Uh, some modern books on the, um, the unimportance or the irrelevance of the church in our modern day would say this is simply talking about things like a brother or a sister in Christ getting together and having coffee at Starbucks. We're not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, right? Because wherever two or three are gathered, that's where Christ is. Well, I think that's taking that statement of Christ in Matthew 18 out of context, but it's also misusing and misapplying what this verse is saying. Assembling together in this way is talking about both the formal and the informal gatherings that belong to the church. 
So you can think of that as the corporate gatherings of the church, as well as the smaller, more intimate house-to-house gatherings that take place in the church. This is the model that we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, for example, where these new believers were devoting themselves daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Now here you have this picture of corporate assembly in the temple. You're talking about 3,000 people. They weren't going to fit in one person's house, right? They had corporate assembly in the temple, and then also they had fellowship that was going on from house to house. You know how we've tried to model that here at Oak Ridge, right? Corporate assembly on Sunday morning, care group ministry throughout the rest of the week. It's not a perfect one-to-one, but it's at least trying to make an effort to have a well-rounded, biblically informed fellowship in this local body of believers. This is really just our attempt to do what Bonhoeffer's title, Bonhoeffer's book entitled Life Together, right? That's what the church is about. It's about life together. That's what we're seeking to do here at Oak Ridge. That's what we're being called to do here in Hebrews 10.25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is really just one of the means by which we are obeying what we just saw in verse 24. Let me just point out the obvious It's very hard to know someone well enough to consider them. To consider how to stir this person up to love and good deeds if that person is never around. In fact, I would argue that it's impossible to do that with someone who is never around. Donald Guthrie writes in his commentary, it stands to reason that no provocation is possible unless suitable opportunities occur for the stirring process to take effect. No provocation will be possible unless there are suitable opportunities occurring that allow the stirring process to take effect. You can't stir one another up to love and good deeds if you're never around each other. Right. That's what he's getting at. Interpersonal, face-to-face interaction with other people is absolutely necessary in order to have the kind of biblical fellowship that this chapter is calling us to have. I passed a church this morning that had on its sign, um, join us virtually. And especially in light of the fact that I'm working on this sermon today, or preaching this sermon today, I realize in that statement more fully now than I ever have that that is actually literally impossible. You cannot join the church body virtually. Otherwise, how are you fulfilling this command to set your mind upon your brothers and sisters and speak to them in such a way that you're encouraging them in the faith? How, how are you letting them fulfill those responsibilities in your life if all you're doing is sitting at home watching a live stream service? You can't do that, guys. You can watch. You can be an observer. You can look into what is happening in in that church worship service, but you're not actually a participant in that worship service. Now, 
I need to say something here that's hard. Okay? I promise you that I'm saying this with all the love that Christ has given me for you in my heart. And let me, let me be honest and clear. I'm not so much talking about those in this room who agree with me. I'm talking about those who maybe are watching online, who maybe don't agree with what I'm saying, or maybe just haven't heard what I'm saying about the importance of actually physically gathering together with Christ's people. If, now, listen, let, let me pause for a second. Even if you are not one of these people who believes you can still participate in the life of the church and be separated from the church, what I'm about to say still applies to you. Because we are right now living in a time where we all have friends and we all have family members who really don't understand what the big deal is about not gathering physically with the church. If we understand this, then it will help us reason with them Right? And, and call them back to obedience to the will of Christ for them. No matter what danger we are facing, nothing is more dangerous to us than being outside of the revealed will of God. Okay? So we can all learn from this. If you are someone who neglects the means of fellowship with the church... Your neglect not only effectively cuts you, cuts you off from the fellowship of the church, but it also reveals the truth about your priorities. There are some, not, and I'm not thinking specifically or strictly about our church fellowship, but there are some, even all around the country and around the world, who have neglected the corporate assembly and genuine fellowship with Christ's people for two years. Now, I don't want to be too hard on them specifically because there are other people who neglect the corporate worship of Christ's people for other reasons and they've been doing it for far longer than two years. Right? All that's doing is proving that they are not believers. Now I want to speak carefully. I understand caution. Okay. There are times to be cautious. There are times to show wisdom. But what I cannot, for the life of me, understand is the inconsistency that I see manifesting in people's lives who call themselves believers. What am I talking about? The majority of people who have neglected the fellowship of the church because of a fear of catching a virus, though they have stopped coming to the corporate gatherings of the church, they haven't stopped going to doctor's appointments. They haven't stopped going to grocery stores. They haven't stopped getting their hair cut. Right? They haven't stopped going to family gatherings. They haven't stopped attending weddings or funerals but they have stopped coming into the corporate assembly of the church. Now, what does that tell us about the priority that fellowship with believers in the church has or holds in that person's heart? Now, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm definitely not trying to be cruel 
or condemning. But I am trying to point something out with a seriousness that everyone needs to take to heart. What does withdrawing from the fellowship of the body of Christ reveal about your commitment to Christ? Let me, let me frame this within something that's really tangible right now, okay? If your fear of getting the virus and dying from the virus, or maybe, let me, let me, let me frame that in positive language. If you are trying to preserve your life by doing everything you can not to catch the virus, including not coming to the corporate assembly of God's people, what does that say about your ultimate commitments and priorities? Does that not say that your ultimate commitment in this life is not Christ? It's not Christ's people. It's your own life. Am I wrong in that reasoning? Now, don't let me just harp on those who are staying away because of a virus. Thankfully, this is not so much the case anymore. But for a while, there was a season where a great number of people in this church body would literally disappear through the summertime. Three months, just people gone. You know, up at the cabins, gardening, rushing their kids around to sports, even on the Lord's Day. What are you saying about the priority of the church when, for example, you skip out on church with your whole family in order to get your son to a ball game? What are you saying about what is ultimately important in that moment? What are you, what are you, what are you working into the minds and the hearts of your children whenever you do something like that? You can confess all you want that the church is important and that Christ is your ultimate commitment. But what you're really manifesting whenever you do something like that, you are manifesting that the church may be a commitment in your life so long as nothing else that you want to do gets in the way. And, and, and take that outside of that. People skip out on church to go to something as stupid as a Vikings game. No, I know that's, I, I don't mean that just to be like a joke or funny. I'm, I'm serious. To go to a Twins game. Guys, that is absolutely, that's, that's utterly ridiculous. You're skipping out on what is, what is the earthly picture of the glorious worship that's going on in heaven. You are skipping out on that in order to go sit around a bunch of people hitting a ball with a stick. A bunch of arrogant showboats running into each other out on a football field because they can't do anything else. God, I mean, just, just stop and just think about what you're doing. Think about what you're saying by what you're doing. Stop, stop, letting, stop letting your professions of what you say to be true outweigh your actions of what proves to be true in your lives. Right? This is what it means to, to, to throw off the facade and begin dealing honestly with Christ. Amen. 
Now, I'm not condemning sports, and I'm not condemning vacations, and I'm not condemning other things that are fun to do. But what I am saying is when we let those things take the priority over what God has declared needs to be the priority in our lives, we've erred. We've gone wrong, and we need to repent. All right, briefly, last point. Okay, a couple minutes. Give me just a couple minutes. Okay, I see a thumbs up. I'll take it. Thirdly, we not only cultivate biblical fellowship in this church by setting our minds upon one another, considering each other, not only doing that by assembling with one another, but also by encouraging each other. And this is really important when we're talking about this call to consider one another. It's really important to remember the end or the aim that you're shooting for in that consideration process. Verse 25, we are to consider one another, not forsaking our gathering together, but rather encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I could go on and on about everything that is involved in encouraging one another. But I just want to point out that the purpose of our attentiveness to one another is not what so often is the reason for many of us, when we pay attention extra carefully to other people. No, it's complicated. I like going to the state fair for one reason. And it is not, well, aside from Sweet Martha's cookies and milk, it is, it's, it's not because of what is offered at the fair, other than the spectacle of the people who are walking by. I like to go sit at the state fair, and I actually caught this from my wife. So if you want to blame anyone for this, this came from Jamie. And she's not here right. She's down in the nursery, so I can say that. When I, I like to go to the state fair because of just paying attention to how many different kinds of people there are, even in our region. There are some really strange people. <laughs> that attend the fair. And I, and I just, I like to pay attention to that, right? You know, sometimes we, we have that kind of mentality that bleeds into the kind of attention that we pay to one another in the church. Where it's, it's, not, it's not an attention that is for some proactive thing or some redemptive reason, but it's an attention that's really, at a, in its essence, destructive. It's judgmental. It's an attention that we give to other people that leads to gossip, right? Or slander, criticism, complaints. Oh man, did you see that? Did you see that shirt that he was wearing today? That just looked horrible on him. Did you see her hair? Did she get her hair done? Man, that just doesn't look good on her. Or maybe we pay attention to everyone else when what they're doing is offending us. Right? We pay extra careful attention to them then. And then we run with the offense rather than going to the person and addressing the problem. I think it's important to remember that our aim in considering one another and our aim in gathering together with one another is to be an encouragement to one another. Not to condemn each other, not just to gossip about what we're seeing in one another, but, but rather to encourage one another in the faith. 
to stir up hope in one another that Christ is reigning on high and He's coming again. To help each other rely more fully upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in our failings. To press into the liberating beauty of repentance. Right. To grow in love and good deeds. Being willing to rock the boat in each other's lives, even if it makes each other uncomfortable. For the end of reaching something good. Something that's encouraging. Something that equips them to live more fully with love and good deeds for the glory of God and the good of His people. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to have a full church service every day. Not necessarily. But it does mean that we must be considering one another with enough effort to understand how we can be an encouragement to one another. And let me draw one application from that, not just among those people that we like being around here in this place. Everyone in this church body is called to be one body together. So we can't be cliquish, right? We can't be focused just upon those people who are our intimate friends, our Peters and James and Johnses. We need, to be, we need to be seeking this kind of fellowship with everyone in this room across the board, everyone who is covenanted in membership in this place. Amen. So this is a kind of fellowship in the church that is one of the main tools God uses to ensure that we persevere and grow in the faith. Now, James, I'm going to pause you, okay? We're going to do something new next month where after this we're going to... Have a musical interlude, intermission type thing or something. I don't know how to describe it. James will come up and play, and it'll give us some time to contemplate and think about what we've just heard before we come to the table. But today, because I've gone later than I wanted, we're just going to come right into our worship at the table, okay? You guys are going to be without me preaching for three weeks. What else can I do but keep you later today? Uh, um, So, in light of what we've heard about encouraging one another, gathering together, setting our minds upon one another, there's no place in the corporate worship of the church where that needs to be most fully manifest than in our time coming to the Lord's table. Our minds need to be focused upon what is good for other people. Even if we're not physically interacting with people during this time, you're interacting with the Lord, aren't you? You ought to be. You ought to be praying, giving thanks to Christ for everything he's done for you with a specific, also, a specific attention being given to what would be good for the church body. Lord, as we gather here, as we partake in this one bread, in this one cup, as we symbolically uh, celebrate your table as an expression of our unity in you, God, let the hearts of your people be glad. Let their minds be focused upon you, Lord. Would you fill them with your spirit? Would you help them rejoice in the truth? Don't let this be an empty rote exercise for my brothers and sisters, Lord. Please fill them with your spirit and renew their hearts in the truth. That kind of pleading, that kind of community-mindedness ought to even be present whenever we come to something like the celebration of the Lord's table. 
So brothers and sisters, I invite you to enter into that kind of intercessory worship. Not only worshiping Christ for yourself, but worshiping Christ for your brothers and sisters, praying and seeking his face for their good.